0: Ladies and gentlemen, Real Paranormal Activity is proud to present Terry's Mysterious Moments. Welcome to Terry's Mysterious Moments, season three. Thank you for joining me on this journey into the odd, the weird, the strange. Hope you'll enjoy it. Now, on with the show. Hello everybody, this is Terry from Texas. I want to tell you that this is an interesting show tonight because it deals with a Christmas story, not a Thanksgiving story. And it's not spooky, but it's just unusual. It is, in my opinion, a mysterious story. So let's go with it from there, okay? The Christmas Truce was a series of widespread, unofficial ceasefires along the Western Front of World War I around Christmas of 1914. The truce occurred during the relatively early period of the war. It's the fifth month of 51 of the war. Hostilities had lulled as leadership on both sides reconsidered their strategies following the stalemate of the race to the sea and the indecisive result of the First Battle of Ypres. In the week leading up to the 25th, French, German, and British soldiers crossed trenches to exchange seasonal greetings and talk. In some areas, men from both sides ventured into no man's land on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day to mingle and exchange food and souvenirs. There were joint burial ceremonies and prisoner swaps, while several meetings ended in carol singing. Men played games of football with one another and they created one of the most memorable images of the truce doing so. Fighting continued in some sectors while in others the sides settled on little more than arrangements to recover bodies. The following year, A few units arranged ceasefires, but the truces were not nearly as widespread as in 1914. And the reason for this was, in part, due to strongly worded orders from the high commands of both sides prohibiting truces. You don't do that. The soldiers were no longer amenable to truce by 1916, as the war had become increasingly bitter after the devastating human losses suffered during the battles of the Somme and Verdun and the use of poison gas. The truces were not unique to the Christmas period and reflected a mood of live and let live, where infantry close together would stop overtly aggressive behavior and often engage in small-scale fraternization, engaging in conversation or bartering for cigarettes. In some sectors, there were occasional ceasefires to allow soldiers to go between the lines and recover wounded or dead comrades. In others, there was a tacit agreement not to shoot while men rested, exercised, or worked in view of the enemy. The Christmas truces were particularly significant due to the number of men involved and the level of their participation. Even in very peaceful sectors, dozens of men openly congregating in daylight was remarkable, and are often seen as a symbolic moment of peace and humanity amidst one of the most violent events in human history. During the first eight months of the war, the German attack through Belgium and into France had been repelled outside Paris by French and British troops at the Battle of the Marne in early September of 1914. The Germans fell back to the Aisne Valley where they prepared defensive positions. In the subsequent Battle of the Aisne, the Allied forces were unable to push through the German line and the fighting quickly degenerated into a stalemate. Neither side was willing to give ground, and both started to develop fortified systems of trenches. To the north, on the right of the German army, there had been no defined front line, and both sides quickly began to try to use this gap to outflank one another. In the ensuing race to the sea, the two sides repeatedly clashed, each other trying to push forward and threaten the end of the other's line. After several months of fighting, during which the British forces were withdrawn from the Aisne and sent north into Flanders, the northern flank had developed into a similar stalemate. By November, there was a continuous front line running from the North Sea to the Swiss frontier, occupied on both sides by armies in prepared defensive positions. In the lead-up to Christmas of 1914, there were several peace initiatives, including The Open Christmas Letter, which was a public message for peace, addressed to the women of Germany and Austria and signed by a group of 101 British women suffragettes at the end of 1914 as the first Christmas of World War I approached. Pope Benedict XV, on December 7th of 1914, had begged for an official truce between the warring governments. He asked, that the guns may fall silent at least upon the night the angels sang. This attempt was officially rebuffed. Fraternization, which is peaceful and sometimes friendly interactions between opposing forces, was a regular feature in quiet frontline sectors of the Western Front. In some areas it manifested as passive inactivity, where both sides would refrain from overtly aggressive or threatening behavior while in other cases, it extended to regular conversation or even visits from one trench to another. Truces between British and German units can be dated to early November 1914, around the time opposing armies had begun static trench warfare. At this time, both sides' rations were brought up to the front line after dusk, and soldiers on both sides noted a period of peace while they collected their food. By the 1st of December, A British soldier could record a friendly visit from a German sergeant one morning to see how they were getting on. Relations between French and German units were generally more tense, but the same phenomenon began to emerge. In early December, a German surgeon recorded a regular half-hourly truce each evening to recover dead soldiers for burial, during which French and German soldiers exchanged newspapers. This behavior was often challenged by junior and senior officers. The young Charles de Gaulle wrote on December 7th of the lamentable desire of French infantrymen to leave the enemy in peace, while the commander of 10th Army, Victor Durbel, wrote of the unfortunate consequences when men become familiar with their neighbors' opposite. Other truces could be enforced on both sides by weather conditions, especially when trench lines flooded in low-lying areas, though these often lasted after the weather had cleared. On the eastern front, Fritz Chrysler reported incidents of spontaneous truces and fraternization between the Austro-Hungarians and Russians in the first few weeks of the war. The proximity of trench lines made it easy for soldiers to shout greetings to each other, and this may have been the most common method of arranging informal truces during 1914 men would frequently exchange news or greetings, helped by a common language. You see, many soldiers on the German side had lived in England, particularly London, and were familiar with the language and the culture. Several British soldiers recorded instances of Germans asking about news from the football leagues, while other conversations could be as banal as discussions of the weather, or as plaintive as messages for a sweetheart. One unusual phenomenon that grew in intensity was music. In peaceful sectors, it was not uncommon for units to sing in the evenings, sometimes deliberately with an eye towards entertaining or gently taunting their opposite numbers. This shaded gently into more festive activity. In early December, Sir Edward Hulse of the Scots Guards wrote that he was planning to organize a concert party for Christmas Day, which would give the enemy every conceivable form of song in harmony in response to frequent choruses of Deutschland über alles. Roughly 100,000 British and German troops were involved in the unofficial cessations of hostility along the Western Front. The first truce started on Christmas Eve 1914 when German troops decorated the area around their trenches in the region of Ypres, Belgium and particularly in St. Ivan, where Captain Bruce Bairn's father described the truce. The Germans placed candles on their trenches and on Christmas trees, then continued the celebration by singing Christmas carols. The British responded by singing carols of their own. The two sides continued by shouting Christmas greetings to each other. Soon thereafter, there were excursions across no man's land where small gifts were exchanged, such as food, tobacco, and alcohol, and souvenirs such as buttons and hats. The artillery in the region fell silent. The truce also allowed a breathing spell where recently killed soldiers could be brought back behind their lines by burial parties. Joint services were held. In many sectors the truce lasted through Christmas night and in some sectors it continued until New Year's Day. On Christmas Day Brigadier General Walter Congreve then commanding the 18th Infantry Brigade, stationed near Neuve Chapelle, wrote a letter recalling the Germans initiated by calling a truce for the day. One of his brigade's men bravely lifted his head above the parapet, and others from both sides walked onto no man's land. Officers and men shook hands and exchanged cigarettes and cigars. One of his captains smoked a cigar with the best shot in the German army, the latter no more than 18 years old. Congreve admitted he was reluctant to personally witness the scene of the truce for fear he would be a prime target of German snipers. Bruce Barron's father, who served throughout the war, wrote, I wouldn't have missed that unique and weird Christmas day for anything. I spotted a German officer, some sort of lieutenant I should think, and being a bit of a collector, I intimated to him that I had taken a fancy to some of his buttons. I brought out my wire clippers and with a few deft snips, removed a couple of his buttons and put them in my pocket. I then gave him two of mine in exchange. The last I saw was one of my machine gunners, who was a bit of an amateur hairdresser in civil life, cutting the unnaturally long hair of a docile Boche who was patiently kneeling on the ground whilst the automatic clippers crept up the back of his neck. Future nature writer Henry Williamson, then a 19-year-old private in the London Rifle Brigade, wrote to his mother on Boxing Day, the day after Christmas. Dear Mother, I am writing from the trenches. It is 11 o'clock in the morning. Beside me is a coke fire. Opposite me, a dugout, but it's wet, with straw in it. The ground is sloppy in the actual trench, but frozen elsewhere. In my mouth is a pipe, presented by the Princess Mary. In the pipe is tobacco. Of course, you say. But wait, in the pipe is German tobacco. Ha ha! you say, from a prisoner or found in a captured trench. Oh dear, no. It's from a German soldier. Yes, a live German soldier from his own trench. Yesterday, the British and Germans met and shook hands in the ground between the trenches and exchanged souvenirs, yes, all day Christmas Day and as I write. Marvelous, isn't it? Captain Sir Edward Hulse reported how the first interpreter he met from the German lines was from Suffolk, England, where he had left his girlfriend and a 3.5-horsepower motorcycle. Hulse described a sing-song which ended up with Auld Lang Syne, which we all, English, Scots. Irish, Prussians, Wurttembergers, etc., joined in. It was absolutely astounding, and if I had seen it on a cinematograph film, I should have sworn that it was faked. Captain Robert Patrick Miles, King's Shropshire Light Infantry, who was attached to the Royal Irish Rifles, recalled in an edited letter that was published in both the Daily Mail and the Wellington Journal and Shrewsbury News in January of 1915, following his death in action on December 30th of 1914. Friday, Christmas Day. We are having the most extraordinary Christmas Day imaginable. A sort of unarranged and quite unauthorized, but perfectly understandable and scrupulously observed truce exists between us and our friends in front. The funny thing is... It only seems to exist in this part of the battle line. On our right and left, we can all hear them firing away as cheerfully as ever. The thing started last night, a bitter cold night, with white frost, soon after dusk, when the Germans started shouting, Merry Christmas, Englishmen, to us. Of course, our fellows shouted back, and presently, large numbers of both sides had left their trenches, unarmed, and met in the debatable, shot-riddled, no man's land between the lines. Here the agreement, all on their own, came to be made that we should not fire at each other until after midnight tonight. The men were all fraternizing in the middle. We naturally did not let them too close to our lines and swapped cigarettes and lies in the utmost good fellowship. Not a shot was fired all night. Of the Germans, he wrote, they are distinctly bored with the war. In fact, one of them wanted to know what on earth we were doing here fighting them. The truce in that sector continued into Boxing Day. He commented about the Germans. The beggars simply disregard all our warnings to get down from off their parapet. So things are at a deadlock. We can't shoot them in cold blood. I cannot see how we can get them to return to business. On Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, Alfred Anderson's unit of the 1st of the 5th Battalion of the Black Watch was billeted in a farmhouse away from the front line. In a later interview in 2003, Anderson, who was the last known surviving Scottish veteran of the war, vividly recalled Christmas Day and said, I remember the silence, the eerie sound of silence. Only the guards were on duty. We all went outside the farm buildings and just stood listening. And, of course, we were thinking of people back home. All I'd heard for two months in the trenches was the hissing, cracking, and whining of bullets in flight machine gun fire and distant German voices. But there was a dead silence that morning, right across the land as far as you could see. We shouted to no one in particular, Merry Christmas, even though nobody felt very merry. The silence ended early in the afternoon and the killing started again. It was a short peace and a terrible war. Nor were the observations confined to the British, German Lieutenant Johannes Niemann wrote, grabbed my binoculars and, looking cautiously over the parapet, saw the incredible sight of our soldiers exchanging cigarettes, schnapps, and chocolate with the enemy. Sir Horace Smith Dorian, commander of the British 2nd Corps, issued orders forbidding friendly communication with the opposing German troops. A young corporal of the 16th Bavarian Reserve Infantry, whose name was Adolf Hitler, was also an opponent of the truce. Go figure, right? In the Commins sector of the front, there was an early fraternization between German and French soldiers in December of 14, during a short truce, and there are at least two other testimonials from French soldiers of similar behaviors in sectors where German and French companies opposed each other. Gervais Morillon wrote to his parents, the Boche waved a white flag and shouted, Comrades! Comrades! Rendezvous! When we didn't move, they came towards us, unarmed, led by an officer. Although we were not clean, they are disgustingly filthy. I'm telling you this, but don't speak of it to anyone. We must not mention it even to other soldiers. Gustav Bertier wrote, On Christmas Day, the Boche made a sign showing they wished to speak to us. They said they didn't want to shoot. They were tired of making war. They were married, like me. They didn't have any differences with the French, but with the English. In sections of the front where German and Belgian troops faced each other in December, there was at least one instance when a truce was achieved at the request of Belgian soldiers who wished to send letters back to their families over the German-occupied parts of their own country. Richard Schirman, who was in a German regiment holding a position on the Bernhardstein, one of the mountains of the Voges, wrote an account of events in December of 1915. When the Christmas bells sounded in the villages of the Voges behind the lines, something fantastically unmilitary occurred. German and French troops spontaneously made peace and ceased hostilities. They visited each other through disused trench tunnels and exchanged wine, cognac, and cigarettes for Westphalian black bread, biscuits, and ham. This suited them so well that they remained good friends, even after Christmas was over. He was separated from the French troops by a narrow no-man's land and described the landscape as strewn with shattered trees, the ground plowed up by shell fire, a wilderness of earth, tree roots, and tattered uniforms. Military discipline was soon restored, but Sherman pondered over the incident and whether thoughtful young people of all countries could be provided with suitable meeting places where they could get to know each other. He went on to found the German Youth Hostel Association in 1919. A separate manifestation of the Christmas truce in December occurred on the Eastern Front, where the first move originated from the Austro-Hungarian commanders at some uncertain level of the military hierarchy. The Russians responded positively and the soldiers eventually met in no man's land. After Christmas of 1914, sporadic attempts were made at seasonal truces. A German unit attempted to leave their trenches under a flag of truce on Easter Sunday 1915 but were warned off by the British opposite them. And later in the year, in November, a Saxon unit briefly fraternized with the Liverpool Battalion. In December of 1915, there were explicit orders by the Allied commanders to forestall any repeat of the Christmas truce. Individual units were encouraged to mount raids and harass the enemy, whilst communicating with the enemy was discouraged by artillery barrages along the front line throughout the day. The prohibition was not completely effective, however, and a small number of brief truces occurred. An eyewitness account of one truce by Llewellyn Wynn Griffith recorded that after a night of exchanging carols, dawn on Christmas Day saw a rush of men from both sides and a feverish exchange of souvenirs, before the men were quickly called back by their officers with offers to hold a ceasefire for the day and possibly to play a football match. It came to nothing as the brigade commander threatened repercussions for the lack of discipline and insisted on a resumption of firing in the afternoon. Nevertheless, another member of Griffith's battalion, a Bertie Fieldstead, later recalled that one man had produced a football, resulting in a free-for-all. There could have been 50 on each side before they were ordered back. Another unnamed participant reported in a letter home the germans seemed to be awfully nice chaps and said they were awfully sick of the war in the evening according to robert keating another eyewitness the germans were sending up starlights and singing they stopped so we cheered them and we began singing land of hope and glory and men of harlech etc etc we stopped and they cheered us so we went on till the early hours of the morning In an adjacent sector, a short truce to bury the dead between the lines led to official repercussions. A company commander, Sir Ian Colquhoun, of the Scots Guards, was court-martialed for defying standing orders to the contrary. While he was found guilty and reprimanded, the punishment was annulled by General Haig, and Colquhoun remained in his position. The official leniency may perhaps have been because his wife's uncle was H. H. Asquith, the Prime Minister. In the Decembers of 1916 and 1917, German overtures to the British for truces were recorded without any success. In some French sectors, singing and an exchange of throne gifts was occasionally recorded, though these may simply have been a reflection of a seasonal extension of the live-and-let-live approach common in trenches. At Easter of 1915, there were recorded instances of truces between Orthodox troops of opposing sides on the Eastern Front. The Bulgarian writer, Jordan Yovkov, serving as an officer near the Greek border at the Mesta River, witnessed one such truce. It inspired his story, Holy Night, which was translated into English in 2013 by Krastu Baniyev. On May 24th of 1915, Anzac and Turkish troops at Gallipoli agreed to a nine-hour truce to retrieve and bury their dead, during which opposing troops exchanged smiles and cigarettes. Although the popular tendency has been to see the December 1914 Christmas truces as unique and therefore of romantic rather than political significance, they have also been interpreted as part of the widespread spirit of non-cooperation with the war and conduct by serving soldiers. In his book on trench warfare, historian Tony Ashworth describes what he calls the live and let live system. Complicated local truces and agreements not to fire at each other were developed by men along the front throughout the war. These often began with agreement not to attack each other at tea, meal, or washing times, and in some places became so developed that whole sections of the front would see few casualties for extended periods of time. This system, Ashworth argues, gave soldiers some control over the conditions of their existence. The December 1914 Christmas truces can then be seen as not unique, but as the most dramatic example of spirit of non-cooperation with the war that included refusal to fight, unofficial truces, mutinies, strikes, and peace protests. A 1933 play called Peterman Makes Peace or the Parable of German Sacrifice. It was written by a Nazi writer and World War One veteran, Heinz Stegewite. A German soldier, accompanied by Christmas carols sung by his comrades, erects an illuminated Christmas tree between the trenches, but is shot dead by the enemy. Later, when the fellow soldiers find his body, they notice in horror that enemy snipers have shot down every single Christmas light from the tree. That's to show how barbaric the Allies were. 1967 song Snoopy's Christmas by the Royal Guardsmen was based on the Christmas truce. In this song, the Red Baron, Germany's ace pilot and war hero, initiates the truce with the fictitious Snoopy of the song. John McCutcheon's 1984 song Christmas in the Trenches tells the story of the 1914 truce through the eyes of a fictional soldier performing the song McCutcheon met German veterans of the truce In the final episode of the BBC television series Blackadder Goes Forth, it references the truce with the main character Edmund Blackadder having played in a football match He is also seen being annoyed at having had a goal disallowed for offside there's a 1996 song by country artist, Colin Ray, It Could Happen Again, which tells the story of the Christmas truce, and it is included on his Christmas album, Christmas the Gift. It's got a spoken intro by Johnny Cash, who gives the history behind the event. Country artist Garth Brooks, in 1997, released a song called Bellow Wood, which is a fictional account based on the truce. The 2005 French film Joyeux Noël, which is translated into English as Merry Christmas, is depicted through the eyes of French, British, and German soldiers. Ahead of the centenary of the truce back in December 2014, English composer Chris Eaton and singer Abby Scott produced the song 1914, The Carol of Christmas, to benefit the British Armed Forces charities. You ought to go on YouTube and try to find that song because it'll bring a tear to your eye. In the Doctor Who 2017 Christmas special, twice upon a time, the first and twelfth doctors become unwittingly involved in the fate of a British captain who is seemingly destined to die in a confrontation in no man's land before he is taken out of time, only for the twelfth doctor to bend the rules and return the captain, revealed to be an ancestor of his friend and ally, Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart, to appoint a couple of hours after he was taken out of time. This slight bending of the rules results in the captain being returned to history at the beginning of the Christmas truce, allowing the captain to live and request aid for his would-be killer. The 12th doctor then mused that such a truce was the only time such a thing happened in history, but it never hurts to ensure that there will be a couple fewer dead people on the field. Yes, strange things happen in life, Mysterious things happen in wartime, especially. We can just imagine, go back in time in our minds. We're sitting in the freezing cold night of Christmas Eve, Christmas night. The firing has stopped, the guns are silent, there are no rifles being fired. You're just trying to stay warm and trying to stay alive. And over the silence of no man's land comes a voice. The words are strange, but the song is familiar. Stille Nacht, heilige Nacht. Alle schläft, einsam wacht. Nur das traute Hock, heilige Paar. halter Knabe im lockigen Haar. Schlaf in himmlischer Ruhe. Schlaf in himlisheroo. Happy holidays, everybody. Well, that's the show for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. I thank you for being along for the ride, and be with me next week as we come back with another story, or another group of stories for Terry's Mysterious Moments. I want to remind you that on Mondays, Aaron Hunter brings you Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast, which is listener stories that Aaron tells, mostly ghost stories, and on Tuesdays we have Aaron Frail with Aaron's Horror Show, where he reviews horror movies, different books, uh, things that he's written, and on Wednesdays it's me, Terry's Mysterious Moments, with me, Terry from Texas where we cover just about anything you can think of. And on alternating Thursdays, or every other Thursday, however you want to look at that, we have Patrick Sean Jones with The Sandman Lullaby. We also have video productions on the first Friday of the month from Fold Art Productions, from The Witching Hour, and from Unexplained Cases also remember that you can go to your app store whether you have an apple or an android you can go to your app store look for the rpa app it's a black square with a blue eye right in the middle of it you can't miss it and you can download that app install it into the device you listen to the programs on and that way you will not have to go looking for the programs they'll be right there do that It'll be a lot easier for you to get to the stories. That's about it. I hope everybody has a good week. And Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Thanks for being here. Bye-bye.